And I mean, I love reading some of that Victorian literature and Gothic literature as symbolic of the mind as well. And the house is the mind and, you know, tombs and attics, as we've discussed, being places where you keep the things that you don't want to think or talk about and what that might represent in in stories like this. It's just so fun to play with and clearly has been inspiring for many, many writers who continue to evoke those images and ideas. Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. What a perfect story for October. I can't wait to talk about this one. It really is. I mean, just that opening couple pages, really, because it's it's a long opening description of the scene and the creepy house, and it just sends chills down my spine every time. And oh, totally. It's just the perfect creepy October read, so... Here we are, Edgar Allan Poe. We knew we would get to him someday. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm really glad we picked this one. It just has so many interesting literary elements and connections to other literature. And I don't know if there's anything better than an Edgar Allan Poe story for working on diction and tone and analyzing mood and atmosphere. Like, he... I mean, he's just like the king of of that. He had this personal philosophy about what literature was supposed to do. And so first he really thought there was supposed to be this singular unifying effect on the reader. The reader was supposed to feel something and every reader was pretty much supposed to feel the same thing. And then next he thought, This shouldn't be up to the reader. This is up to the author to make them feel that way, whether it is style or the subject matter. And obviously he nails it because of the way he creates atmosphere and sparks not only fear and horror, but also this sense of claustrophobia or doom or just the various shades of those emotions. So should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. So since since this is a short story, we won't go into a real plot summary. We'll kind of give some setup and then we'll just kind of go based on what struck us throughout this story. It really is just about an unnamed narrator who shows up at this crumbling, decaying manor house to see his old childhood chum, Roderick Usher, who hasn't been feeling well lately. (laughs) (laughs) We have a creepy twin situation. We have... Just like we were talking about this ambiguous sense of we don't really know who these characters are. We get the sense that, yes, obviously they knew each other at some point, but how well did they really know each other? And of course, in the opening of this story, we get such a thorough description of what the narrator is riding up on horseback and seeing. And The house is just straight up the creepiest gothic mansion you can possibly picture. (laughs) And the narrator feels all of the dark senses of foreboding that you would expect with a Poe story. Yeah, I love this description because I like how Poe really doubles down on the horror creepiness factor where very early on, he says that this this feeling, this creepiness, this eeriness, this 
terror was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable because poetic sentiment with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. He's like, it was creepy and not creepy in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Which I feel like is an important point of clarification for a writer like Poe. But it also just really settles this story in its literary movement. I mean, this is this is a gothic story, but it's also firmly in the American Romanticism movement, where that idea of the awesome power and beauty of things that fill us with a little bit of dread and terror was really prominent in artistic movements, in in paintings and stories. And so I I like that Poe is like, no, I'm not talking about that kind of sublime terror. I'm talking about real terror. It is a good distinction for him to make. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this first paragraph is just full of really great description. I mean, even the very opening sentence, it's the perfect fall horror story. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. It's perfect. And then going on from there, I mean, a lot of the description in this opening paragraph, it isn't so much what the house looks like, it's what feeling does it evoke. So we get words like iciness and sickening of the heart, vacant eye-like windows, bleak. We get um, shadowy. And so we just, we get a lot of these words that evoke a certain tone and a certain feeling, but it isn't really that specific about exactly what the house looks like. Yeah, I love that because we get to fill in what our kind of platonic, <laughs> creepy castle would look like as long as, you know, we keep those those feelings in mind. And then the one thing that we do get maybe a little bit more, not real detail on, but that he makes sure to tell us is that there is a black and lurid tarn or or you know pond that is sitting at the base of of this castle and so he's already setting up this symbol or motif or image of the mirror image of duplicates and also the uncanny like the idea that we have one thing and then a replica that's even more off than the original. And all of that helps establish, of course, that eerie mood. But the idea of doubling, you already mentioned we're going to have creepy twins. That's going to be important through this story. Yeah. And not just the twins, but pretty early on here on the second page of the story, we get this, you know, description of the mansion of gloom, I think at one point it's called. But then we also get this description of the family and the house of Usher is referred to or is referring to the family itself. Like this is the house of Usher. This is the family and their literal brick and mortar mansion. And so Roderick Usher is the friend that the narrator was writing letters back and forth to and is responding to. And we hear right away that he has some sort of mental illness that is oppressing him. And that's why he invited his friend to come. And then we get a little bit of the family history. And right away, the narrator says, I had learned the very remarkable fact that the stem of the Usher race, all time honored as it was, had put forth at no period any enduring branch. In other words, that the entire family lay in the direct line of descent and had always, with very trifling and very temporary variation, so lain. So this is an incestuous family and it's been incestuous forever. 
And so that doubling is literally like they're just copying each other generation after generation after generation through incest, which just ups the ick factor by a thousand points. I like the casualness with which the narrator drops that. (laughs) And, you know, he, he mentions that in connection with this sort of idea that whatever illness has reared up in Roderick is hereditary and mm-hmm. has been you know passed from generation to generation of this this family. So he arrives at at the house and you know finds himself kind of let into a room where he meets his old friend Roderick who is not looking so good. He is very very pale. He has a miraculous luster of the eye. So like, which just doesn't sound appealing. Like no. the juxtaposition of like a really like pallid face and then these like bright eyes actually reminds me a lot of how Mary Shelley describes the creature in Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. He is struck just by how um, how much Roderick has declined And actually, right before the narrator finds the room where Roderick is, he runs into the family physician on the stairs and has this really creepy encounter with him first. And let's see, it says, on one of the staircases, I met the physician of the family. His countenance, I thought, wore a mingled expression of low cunning and perplexity. He accosted me with trepidation and passed on. What a vocabulary Poe had. (laughs) It's true. It's one of the reasons, I mean, I was reading this and I was thinking about how, I I don't know how it is everywhere, but I remember encountering Poe in middle school and then like never again returning to him until I started teaching high school and was like, these stories are not easy to understand Mm -mm. without huge vocabulary I mean, even just the rhythm of the writing is he writes in complex, really complicated sentences. Um, and it's quite flowery language. So anyway, yes, that vocabulary, it is intense. The cunning of the doctor. What a great thing to insert right there. So we're all already wondering what's going on here. He's letting us question whether the illness illnesses are real or imagined or maybe planted in the mind by somebody else. Yeah. And then, so he runs into the physician and then he meets Roderick. I was just looking as we're talking about Poe's vocabulary. He says a cadaverousness of complexion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah. (laughs) And then, I mean, he describes him a little bit further and almost makes it sound like, oh, maybe he was handsome at some point, but he is just looking really rough right now. And he hasn't seen him for a really long time, but yeah, then they have to kind of catch up with each other. And that's where we really get like, okay, now this is the part of the story. The atmosphere has been set. We get characters actually interacting with each other now. Roderick does kind of start to share a little bit pretty early with the narrator about his his affliction. And then Roderick explains that this this illness is is hereditary. It's a, a family evil. There's no remedy. And one of the symptoms of it is a morbid acuteness of the senses. So like, any odors he can't handle. He can only wear certain fabric textures or he's like an extreme HSP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something I find so fascinating about this is we, we never actually know then why, why this narrator? Yeah. How is he going to help him? <laughs> How is he... Roger kind of says, or the narrator says, like he said, I was going to come and be a solace to him. That's why he invited me here. But how? How was he going to be a solace when 
his affliction, like you said, is of the sense of. Yeah, it's, it seems kind of like Roderick just needed someone to come witness his his life and his being and ultimately his, you know, decay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing they do kind of start to do, sometimes they read together, the narrator will read to, to Roderick, or Roderick does play music. There are certain string instruments, and he he only does improv, which <laughs> <laughs> sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah. That's part Talk of the, about the horror in this yeah. story. Um, but I think probably is, you know, Poe's way of telling us that whatever these stories he's saying are coming from his unconscious. And so we're supposed to read into, you know, the lyrics of these, these songs. Um, but before, before we get into, uh, we can talk a little bit about the one song that we do get in this. We are briefly introduced to our third character. Madeline is Roderick's twin. And the narrator knew nothing about her. He had no idea that Roderick had a twin, which I think is odd considering apparently they were friends from way back. We get this whole history of the House of Usher family as if the narrator sort of knows something about them. He knows enough about them to know that they have been incestuous for centuries. I guess that could just be town gossip. But he had no idea that Roderick had a twin. And so Roderick says, my sister is sick too. And the narrator's like, you have a sister. Okay, (laughs) great. But she has a mysterious illness as well. And she has, it says, a settled apathy a gradual wasting away of the person, and frequent, although transient, affections of a partially cataleptical character. And that's her diagnosis. So she has episodes where she just goes catatonic and basically it seems like she's dead. She is depressed. She has not been, it seems like, eating. She's just wasting away. She's just slowly dying. And so Roderick brings her up and mentions her illness, but then the narrator says, for several days after, neither of us mentioned her name or talked about her. That's he so was weird. too busy. Mm-hmm. It's super weird. He was too busy trying to ease Roderick's suffering to worry about Madeline. So that's where we get like, well, we painted, we read together, we did the things that we could do. And it almost seems like they were just like kind of lost in this dream world together. But neither one of them had any concern about Madeline. So we we know kind of there's this this shadow, this mirror figure of of Madeline. We 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 don't know at this point. The narrator doesn't know at this point that she's Roderick's twin. But we know there's, you know, this this other figure kind of on the margins of of the story as it continues. We get some of Roderick's music and poetry (laughs) in this. And the one one song that the narrator really remembers (laughs) and can write down for us is The Haunted Palace, which... You know, it's a little heavy-handed, but that's fine. <laughs> and, a little. Yeah. <laughs> and it's basically about this beautiful golden palace that is kind of, some evil surrounds it, and it ends up, both the palace and family end up kind of crumbling within. Yeah, and the narrator says... I I remember the suggestions from this ballad sort of led us led us to this place where we could think about Usher and like led us to this place where we could kind of think about the reality of what's happening in this creepy mansion a little bit. Maybe the narrator is some sort of like uncredited psychoanalyst because he seems to be listening to Roderick's improv and then drawing out what it might mean is the narrator roderick oh yeah i know this is a great one to really like 
dig into in terms of is is the house really just one mind and each character within it representing a particular part of that mind, which I love to think about. It is fun. And when you think about like the sort of almost split personality or the mirroring, and then you're like, okay, well, we see that with Roderick and Madeline being twins, but we don't really you know, there's not much interaction with Madeline, but we get all the interaction with the narrator and Roderick. And is it sort of that split consciousness of mm-hmm. it's it is really fun to think about. I love that after that list of books that they read together, <laughs> we get uh, Roderick having informed me abruptly that the lady Madeline was no more. That's mm-hmm. how we are told of of Madeline's death and then Roderick's plan is his intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight previously to its final internment in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building I also think it's really interesting that just before this announcement the narrator starts to refer to Roderick as a hypochondria yes Mm -hmm. and so we get this cast of doubt over his whole illness situation because like we said he talks about how sick he is and how he finds no pleasure from anything but then like these two are just hanging out having fun enjoying music and books and all of these things and it seems like the narrator has started to form a slightly different opinion of Roderick and then like you said we get this we get this plan to entomb Madeline and of course the narrator the narrator has to help it's not like there aren't servants running around here and like the physician that we've obviously seen there are other people in this house but the narrator has to be the one to help his friend entomb his sister clearly the narrator thinks that's weird and Roderick is like oh it's because she might be we still don't know what her illness is she might be contagious so we have to just leave her body somewhere for two weeks to make sure and then the narrator's like oh yeah makes total sense let's Let's do it. (laughs) And of course, the tomb is immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment. Of course. It's very telltale heart. Mm -hmm. Beneath the floorboards, I can hear something. And Poe is quite specific about including that the door to this tomb is massive iron and heavily protected, but it makes a sharp grating sound when you move it on its hinges. So you're going to be able to hear it if it opens. <laughs> Big if, if it opens. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and and this, when when they take her to the tomb, this is when the narrator really gets his first good look at her face, and he's shocked by how similar she looks to Roderick. And Roderick is like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, we're we're twins. Which is, (laughs) this this is not how twins work, but. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's, you know, is supposed to add to like their, their connection, right? The connection of their illness. And then the narrator also makes sure to tell us that there's, a mockery of a faint blush upon Madeline's bosom and face. Yeah, and it's passed off as, well, this is pretty typical. You know, when someone goes catatonic, then when they die, they just kind of look alive too, right? That's just how it is. No, that's not how it is. But we get this, we get this creepy sense of doubt. And we're like, hmm. I don't know. She seems like she might not be dead. But I think the the way that, I don't know, their twin connection is described is really interesting. And it's just such a throwaway line. We don't really actually get later on. Well, maybe we do towards the end when, we, when everything comes to a head. But Poe says that sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Mm-hmm. So that's like the the twin connection. I can feel what you're feeling and 
we've got this sort of like wavelength going between us, which you would think if they had that, that then Roderick would be so much more concerned about her well-being. It's very strange, both the like inclusion of that connection and no real depiction of it. But we do see that once they close the door and Madeline is buried, Roderick goes through, we don't know if it's grief or guilt or what, but his countenance gets even creepier and more ghastly and ghost-like. His mental disorder gets worse. He's really agitated. And there are times, the narrator says, (laughs) there were times indeed when I thought his unceasingly agitated mind was laboring with some oppressive secret to divulge when he struggled for the necessary courage. Mm -hmm. The foreshadowing. I mean, it's just delightful. I know. This story just has every single literary device you could possibly want to teach. And it's like, I don't know, sometimes when I read Poe, I'm like, sometimes it feels so over the top that it's comical to me, and that's why I get enjoyment out of it now. But if you can just go all in on the creepy factor, it's a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I like it on both levels, and I think that's what makes it so fun. So one week into her two-week stay in the tomb, things start getting even weirder in, in the house. The narrator says there's just one night where he just absolutely cannot sleep, and he decides to just get up because sleep's not coming, and He runs into Roderick, who's looking particularly cadaverous that night, and experiencing a restrained hysteria. I like that we get a male character described as hysterical here, which is unusual and probably important. And then, okay, this part is like, I struggle visualizing. Yeah, it seems like there's a tornado or hurricane outside. And that Roderick is like, open the windows. (laughs) And that you just, to me, it feels this, like this sense of like things are just spinning around them and all hell breaks loose, literally. Um, But that there are also like all of these ghosts swirling around them. Mm -hmm. It says that there are terrestrial objects immediately around them glowing with this faintly luminous light and that it's this like electrical phenomena and yet we get the description of this violent wind as well Mm -hmm. so it just seems like yeah all at once open the windows and let the ghosts fly around yeah (laughs) and there are also these huge masses of agitated vapor and he's thinking like maybe that's coming from from the lake like so and and I I mean because Poe has mentioned opium several times I think there also is this question of like okay is there actually some some vapor that's you know filling the house during the storm that is going to make them see or do or think things that aren't real we don't we don't know like that that's part of the the vagueness and ambiguity there but. There's definitely like a shift in the atmosphere of the house. So the narrator says, this is terrible and scary. So let's read a story together. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. (laughs) And so he begins to read a story to Roderick. But as he's reading the story, he starts to hear things from the mansion. And... There is there are sounds in the story and then he's hearing sounds in the mansion. So there's like this really great meta, the story within the story within the story of what's happening psychologically here. But then we hear just like this piercing shriek and they actually it's in the story, but then they actually do hear it. And the narrator is like, there's no doubt. I heard that it was real. It was not just my imagination while I was reading this story. Yeah. And and he's like, Roderick, did you hear that too? And Roderick's like, 
Haven't I told you about my acuteness of senses? (laughs) (laughs) I've been hearing this for a week. (laughs) It's a hard to just like then go into the the climax of of this story because it's just, it all can happen so fast, but at at just the pace Poe wants it to. Yeah. I mean, he still, he sticks with this story within a story for a while. It's true. (laughs) So they hear this shriek and then like they just keep reading. And there's this sort of situation in the story of the knight is slaying the dragon. And then they go ahead and, you know, something falls down in the castle. And then, of course, the narrator hears, as if a shield of brass had indeed at that moment Fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct hollow metallic and clangorous, yet apparently muffled, reverberation. So again, he's hearing these sounds from the story, but as he's getting the sentence out, he starts to hear it in the house. But it's this muffled sound. And we just, we know we had that description of the door to Madeline's tomb for a reason about the brass on the door and how it was iron and how it squeaked on its hinges and made this metallic sound. And so that is when all of a sudden (laughs) the narrator leaps to his feet and he goes to Roderick and Roderick says, of course, I have heard it. We put her living in the tomb. That's the best (laughs) line. (laughs) I like the we. I mean, they did both do it, but (laughs) yeah, really, you know, bringing the narrator into into this. It's so great. Then we get like the most lines that Roderick has has spoken. He connects what's happening to the story that they uh, were just telling and he has like he's laughing throughout there are exclamation points and ha-has and it sounds like he's like reciting poetry right oh whither shall I fly will she not be here anon is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste um and then he you know yells madman and we don't really know who he is saying that to is it about himself Is it about Madeline? Is it about the narrator? We can, of course, then go back to our question about, is the narrator Roderick? We get all of that kind of compiling here as well. And then maybe this is my favorite description in the story because, I mean, it's so cinematic. Like, you can just picture it. The door to the study flies open with a gust of wind. And this really creepy figure is standing there and it's her. I mean, that's it's a classic from every horror movie or horror story that you can think of. And it's Lady Madeline of Usher. I think it's really interesting that her full name is used in that way. She's enshrouded. There's blood on her white robes. There's evidence of a bitter struggle on her emaciated frame. And she's trembling and she's reeling to and fro. And then with a low moaning cry, she falls onto her brother and dies. (laughs) And it sounds like, so it says, bore him to the floor, a corpse and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. It sounds like kills him right along with her. And they just like die in a pile on top of each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Very creepy. So fun. <laughs> it's just the most, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, Cause like I said, it is really, it's over the top, but it's just like, it's so satisfying. Cause it's exactly what you would want to happen. She like rushes into the room and she's all scary looking and she just attacks him. Yeah. I like too that. I mean, the, the description is fell heavily inward. That's literal because she's standing like on the doorway threshold and then mm-hmm. she's falling into the room. But this inward collapsing of the family is also being suggested here. The inward collapsing of the characters. Um, yeah, it's it's so good because it there's so the image of it is so clear. You can really picture this. But then there are also all of these other layers and levels happening here. 
And our narrator, oh, oh, go ahead. Because the narrator leaves and the yeah. house literally collapses in on itself too. So it's yep. like as if we didn't need enough of the metaphor of those two dying and collapsing in on each other and being the death of the family. The house literally falls in on itself and represents the fall of the House of Usher as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it like screams as it collapses too. And it, it collapses into the tarn so into its own image as well which i i love that depiction of like you can see the house and its mirror image just sort of imploding on itself and that's where it ends i mean you just get this fantastic imagery and that's it you don't know what happens to the narrator after that you have no idea there's no like reflection. You don't know exactly where the narrator goes. It's just the fabulous image of, first of all, the twins dying on each other and then the house collapsing in on itself. It's so good. <laughs> if we think about how Edgar Allan Poe, like you said, I think before is like the father of gothic horror Thinking about that last image at the end of Rebecca where Manderley is destroyed, just all of the creepy houses getting destroyed and fires and collapses and how that always represents something about the family that lived there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I love reading some of that Victorian literature and Gothic literature as symbolic of the mind as well. And the house is the mind and, you know, tombs and attics, as we've discussed, being places where you keep the things that you don't want to think or talk about and what that might represent in in stories like this. It's just so fun to play with and clearly has been inspiring for many, many writers who continue to evoke those images and ideas. All right. So we've talked about how Poe just loved to tell a good story to make the reader feel a particular way. But we're also getting pretty deep into some literary interpretation here. I don't know, Chelsea, like, what do you think Poe is trying to do or say with this story? Or is there a larger point that you take away from it? With this one, I don't know that there's a larger point that I take away from it compared to something like The Mask of the Red Death or, um, I don't know, some of his stories seem like, okay, yeah, there's a pretty clear theme or there's some sort of idea that he's really exploring here. I feel like this one is just such a classic example of he really wanted to make his audience feel claustrophobic and feel the blurred lines between fantasy and reality and play upon fear. And I think he does certainly achieve that here. So I think there are some things that we can, some interesting things that we can read into when we use a psychological lens Mm -hmm. and where we can say like, okay, well, what if the narrator is Roderick or what if Roderick is the only one in this story who exists and that the narrator and Madeline are just parts of his psyche. Or I think there's some really interesting things you can play with in this story, but I don't know that I would subscribe to, to one of those specifically and like stake my life on it. Yeah. I I feel exactly the same way. I think there's even interesting things to look at here with like gender studies and, Mm -hmm. um, in alongside particularly psychoanalysis, like is Roderick repressing certain parts of himself? And is that what ultimately leads to this, this collapse or something? Yeah. I think that there are, are really fun and interesting interpretations and takeaways. I, I, I mean, we never know if an author intended those things, Uh, but this one, it does feel more like, he is if trying to make us feel that fear and maybe trying to make us feel that kind of spiral of of madness and um 
claustrophobia and anxiety and get kind of swept up in it to the point where like we we feel in many ways what Roderick and the narrator are are feeling. And I think yeah, it's not moralistic. Oh, like, no. he's not yeah. saying don't do incest. <laughs> like that's just Yeah, a- I mean he's not a proponent <laughs> of it necessarily based right. on the story either. But, <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't feel like a morality tale. Although I I did wonder, I mean like I I think students always want to know. <laughs> like mm-hmm. well, were Roderick and Madeline sleeping together and I think you know one of the ways I I think you can read this especially with that the story that the narrator reads at the end of the um of the knight who's trying to get into the the hut and he tries coercion and he tries flattery and he tries and then he just tries by force I I think you could read that as potential evidence that like Roderick has raped Madeline or assaulted her that like part of what is happening in this house is she's kind of resistant to to this and he's trying to carry on the family tradition but I I don't think even if that is the case I don't think this is like a morality tale or like a something that we walk away with a a lesson from no, you're supposed to walk away with a feeling mm-hmm. and, you know, whether it's, you know, just the sort of like sinking dread or like I said, the claustrophobia of being trapped in this house. And you get the sense that Roderick and Madeline have never been able to leave this house. That's part mm-hmm. of why incest has occurred for centuries in this house is nobody's been able to get out of that. And is it about being trapped in your own mind then where you can't escape and you can't get out of it. And so it leads you down the path of madness. I think there are many interpretations. I Something I think is fascinating is there's this epigraph at the beginning of the story and it's in French, but roughly translated. It says his or her heart is a poised lute. As soon as it is touched, it resounds. Hmm. <laughs> I don't really get it <laughs> how it connects with this story. Um, I think I'll be pondering it for a while because it I don't know if it's suggesting that having this outsider actually come into the mansion is the thing that sort of like struck it and was the final note that needed to be played for everything to collapse around. Um, And maybe that's why the physician was looking so suspiciously at this outsider or um, I, I don't know. I think there are certain ways that you could interpret it, but I do know that Poe really liked mysteries and puzzles and including puzzles in his stories. So I have to think it's got to mean something or it's got to connect in some way. Yeah. Well, I like your interpretation a lot. I I think it works. And I will be very curious what listeners have to say about this short story, your interpretations. So please share with us either on, on Instagram or if you're in our Patreon community in our Discord channel, because there are so many ways to interpret this story. And Getting to kind of play around with it, I think, is is really the enjoyable part. All right, Sarah, we mentioned that we can see so many echoes of other Gothic literature and works based on Edgar Allan Poe's style and just some of the motifs in The Fall of the House of Usher. So I'm really excited to hear what you have paired with this short story. I had a lot of fun coming up with pairings for this. And at the same time, I'm sure there are horror readers who would come up with even more, even better pairings. So this is one where I want to say I'm really curious if listeners have any great pairings. Please share them with us um, on on Instagram because we want to know. But the first thing that came to mind while I was rereading this was The 13th Tale by Diane Setterfield. Have you read this one, Chelsea? I haven't. I've, it, it feels like I have because I've 
either like seen it recommended so many times, or I know it's just such a like beloved book for book lovers kind of situation. So totally. it feels like I have, I have not read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a, it's fun. It's a great fall, fall read and it's fairly backlist. Um, but yeah, I see it all over Instagram. People love this book and it is about a reclusive author. Her name is Vita Winter. Of course, in like these gothic novels, everyone has a great name. Um, but she had written a collection of kind of creepy gothic short stories. The collection was called The 13th Tale or 13 Tales or something like that. But there were only 12 in the story. So there's a missing story from the collection. And that has long been an object of fascination for scholars. And so Vita, she's she's much, much older now. She hasn't written in ages or hasn't published in ages. And she invites a young woman named Margaret out to interview her and write her biography. And And Margaret isn't really a biographer. She's a book lover. But Vita kind of hand selects her. And Margaret arrives at this huge house and knows that some weird stuff is going on at this house. And she sits with Vita day after day as Vita tells her her life story. And so the book alternates between Margaret's story and then Vita telling her her life story. And I I think just to say like how this connects to the fall of the House of Usher would include a lot of spoilers. And so I'm I think I'm really going to stop there and just say that this is a book about creepy families. Um, there's a lot of like parallelism and doubles and mere images happening throughout this book as well. There are, are nods to Poe because we have a gothic short story writer and the even the parallels between Vita and Margaret start to like mirror each other and become interesting and and compelling um this is on the back cover so it's not a spoiler to say that we have some creepy twins in in this one as well different kind of creepy twins but nonetheless um and then questions about like are there is there something supernatural going on here or not and i think that's one of the great things about some poe short stories um is you get to question like is this psychological or is this supernatural? And I think some of the same questions show up in the 13th tale. So this is a fantastic book for book lovers. If you like reading Jane Eyre, Rebecca, it has kind of hints of those with its big houses, but I think it more solidly fits with Poe and that uh, actual kind of gothic horror. So that is the 13th tale by Diane Setterfield. I already mentioned this pairing when we read Horror Story by Carmen Maria Machado, but it's just too good not to mention again here. And I think especially if you are an educator using Poe stories in the classroom, if you're homeschooling, if you're a parent looking for some creepy yet age-appropriate books for your kid to read, or you like reading YA with a horror bent. His Hideous Heart by Dahlia Adler and a bunch of other authors, Dahlia Adler is the editor though, is such an excellent young adult collection and collaboration where all of these great YA authors, including, let's see, we have Lamar Giles, we have Tiffany D. Jackson, and um, Kendara Blake, just a bunch of really great YA authors who are rewriting Poe's short stories and the like the 13, the core 13 stories of his. So we do have The Fall of the House of Usher rewritten. And I hesitate to call these modern adaptations because some of them still have a historical setting, but they have more, they emphasize modern themes in some way. I think I remember the Lamar Giles story being particularly like jolting. They're just, they're really good. I listened to this collection on audio 
And one of the fabulous things about it is the first half of the book is all of these new and fresh adaptations. And then the second half of the book actually has the original Poe short stories. So that's why I think it's just so great for the classroom because you could read one and compare it to the other. I think it'd be really easy to swap for Poe and just get some really, I don't know, great literary conversation out of the classroom. And I just had a lot of fun reading it and recognizing the stories as an adult. So His Hideous Heart by Dahlia Adler is a great short story collection to pair with any Poe, but this creepy story in particular. All right. My next pairing isn't horror, but it is eerie and has, I think, some interesting connections to Poe and Usher. It's The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. And this is a contemporary book published in 2016, but, but a, with a historical setting. It's set in Victorian England, both between London and then Essex County on, on the coast, where this woman named Cora, who has been in a really terrible marriage with a very controlling man. Her husband has has died, she and her son, and her companion, a, a, a female friend of hers, go to Essex and they learn about the sightings of a mysterious sea serpent. And Cora, she really believes in this creature. And she wants to prove its existence. And she meets a, uh, she's she's kind of a woman of, of science. She was a, a scientist. Her husband was a scientist. And she, even though she believes in, in this creature, she wants to kind of prove its existence through the scientific method, through figuring this out, uncovering what's really going on here. She meets a pastor who kind of, really wants to talk a lot with her about faith and God and her, the way maybe her scientific beliefs potentially limit her, um, her ability to have a certain kind of faith. And she challenges him as well. And what I really, I, I loved this book. I will say it's, it's slow and literary it's not like a page-turning mystery, even though there's a mystery at the heart of it. It has a lot of Poe-like elements in a very kind of subtle ways. There are mysterious illnesses. There are, uh, you know, beautiful women who appear catatonic at times. There are, there's this mysterious creature that you don't know if it's real or not, but I also think that it kind of gets at some interesting psychological readings in the same way that Poe stories do, where she maybe in a slightly more realistic way is exploring ideas of repression and desire and doubt. And um, I don't know, like the the connection between art and science and, and faith and all those things. So I... I think this story, it, it, this novel would be good if you like a little bit of that eeriness, you like some connections to to myth, you like a little bit of uncertainty about is this real or is this not, but it's not horror at all. It's not even magical realism. It's just got hints of those questions. So that is The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. And I haven't read her other book, Melmoth, but that might actually even be a better pairing for the House of Usher. So I'll just, I'll throw that out there as well. I went with slow and literary for my next pairing too. The Great. Whispering House by Elizabeth Brooks is a contemporary Gothic novel. It's a somewhat recent release, but I think it was first published in England. And I thought about this as a pairing for Jane Eyre, but I have to say the narrator or the heroine, the main character, is just not compelling enough to match up to Jane. This story 
is not even so much of a character study. There isn't a ton of plot. To me, it just feels like an experiment in creating atmosphere. So we have Freya, and she and her father are at a wedding um, just outside of Burn Hall, which is like this old big manor house. Think of the House of Usher if they allowed people to have weddings outside on their patio to make money. And it's right by the seaside, and it happens to be a couple of miles from where Freya's sister Stella died by suicide five years earlier. So Freya is obviously experiencing this wash of emotions as she's at this wedding that's so close to the site of her sister's death. She gets pretty drunk. She wanders into the house, which is supposed to be off limits, and she sees a painting that she is almost positive is of her sister. She passes out, and when she comes to, the painting is gone. And her father kind of like walks up and gets her and they go back out to the party. Freya cannot get this out of her head. And so she decides she is going to take some time off of work and go back to that house and investigate because she is positive that she saw Stella's portrait there. It turns out Freya meets the caretaker, basically, the the son, the heir to this huge estate She falls for him. His mother is upstairs, ill with something that we don't know. And we just get this really creepy sense that Corey does know Stella, that something is wrong. But we see that Freya is just like getting wrapped up with him. And it's complicated. And it doesn't read like a modern domestic thriller. I didn't really think there were... There are moments that are certainly a little bit, I don't know, scarier or like you're concerned, but it's more just like this consistent sense of dread throughout the novel and this sense of just creepiness and knowing that something is off and just wanting to shake Freya as a main character, but not a ton happens. I think the great part of this book was A, the writing and just the atmosphere that Elizabeth Brooks creates. And there are lots of references to Northanger Abbey. And then B, the discussability, because the ending just kind of drops off a little bit. It's highly discussable. And I think that there can be a lot of book clubbish debates going on about this one. I think that people will not necessarily just love it or hate it, but have some complicated feelings because of the sort of lack of plot. But I really enjoyed the writing and felt like I was just completely wrapped up in the atmosphere of the novel. And so I read it in a few days because I just really, really liked Elizabeth Brooks' writing style. So it just feels very Poe in many ways to me, but mostly just with the atmosphere that she manages to create. So that is The Whispering House by Elizabeth Brooks. I still need to read that one. It sounds so good. All right. And then we have one that we want to co-sign that we just both, when we read this book, neither of us thought of Poe. But then when we returned to Poe, the connections were so obvious. So Chelsea, do you want to share the our final pairing? Yes. So we just had to mention that Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia is the perfect pairing for the fall of the House of Usher mm-hmm. in some ways that are spoilery. Mm-hmm. So we won't get into too much detail. One of the main ways is that the house, the House of Usher, is described as being covered in fungi. Mm-hmm. And that is a prominent part of the estate in Mexican Gothic as well. And you get just this narrator going in or this main character going in to this family. You get really similar illness to Mm -hmm. what's happening in the fall of the house of Usher and a mystery unraveling. And also I just have to say like the end all kind of comes crashing all of the sudden in a similar way to this story where you're like, wait, what's happening here? Yeah, exactly. even though one's a novel and one's a short story, the pacing is kind of similar in terms of yeah. how much 
setup and atmosphere you get and then to the the rushing to the to the conclusion. Yeah, I think I this pairing it's it's too perfect and I think um I mean Mexican Gothic could have been paired with Jane Eyre but it really does converge into a little bit more on the horror side so I think it works so well with Poe. I think I like it better if I if I were to go into Mexican Gothic knowing okay this is a retelling of the fall of the house of usher i think i would have liked it a lot more mm-hmm. compared to everyone saying ooh this is like jane eyre yep. or wuthering heights or Rebecca. i think that yeah agreed the comparison to poe is better mm-hmm. and it makes me like it more so mexican gothic is just our little bonus pairing for you all right chelsea let's Real quick, share our picks of the week. This is where we either fit in another book rec or just something else to enhance your reading. Yeah, these will be linked in show notes. So I have just a couple of links that are great for students or for teachers to use with their students. The Poe Museum. Ideally, you would be able to go, but um, there are lots of online resources, including a really great educator packet that you can sign up to receive from the Poe Museum. And then Common Lit, did you ever use that website with your students? No. It has a ton of short stories, poems, essays, all sorts of things. And there are just a ton of resources associated with them full lesson plans, introductory videos, the ability to like click on words and have them defined, quizzes at the end, writing prompts, all sorts of things. I have recommended it to friends who homeschool as well. And there are a few Edgar Allan Poe short stories and poems on Common Lit that I think it's just a great resource, a great starting point for you whether you've taught Poe before and you want to use something new or you're just getting started in the classroom. And then for teachers, there's a delightful drunk history episode about Edgar Allan Poe and his feud with Rufus Griswold. So we'll (laughs) put a link to the YouTube clips to that in the show notes. I love that. All right. I have two additional books, one that I have shared previously, so I didn't want to use as a pairing and one that I haven't read yet. So The first is The Dangers of Smoking in Bed, which is short stories by Mariana Enriquez. I talked about this in our The House of the Spirits episode and mentioned that it was much more horror and much more magical than The House of the Spirits. And so I think these short stories would pair really well with Poe. And then the second was after I read this story this time around, I just had to Google like if there are any novel retellings of it. And there is a book called The Fall, which is a retelling, a YA horror retelling of The Fall of the House of Usher from the perspective of Madeline and gives her backstory and, you know, her her experiences in in this house. And I, I have no idea if it's good. It has 3.43 stars on Goodreads, which is, I'd say just so, so, but it still sounds kind of fun. And it was written by a high school English teacher. (laughs) So clearly someone who's like read this story a lot and thought, what would it be like from Madeline's perspective? So (laughs) I don't know. I think it could be kind of fun to read. So that is The Fall by Bethany Griffin. So in this episode, we mentioned that we have a really fun literary devices class up on Patreon for you to go and experience. And in Classics Club, you can get live and recorded classes. You can get bonus episodes. You can get access to our Discord server that has a bunch of discussions and just a whole community of readers to talk about short stories with you. And that is all at patreon.com slash novel pairings. You can join at the $5 level or the $8 level. And we just appreciate your financial support to keep this podcast going. You can also support the podcast for free 
by spreading the word about it, sending your friends a link to your favorite episode, writing a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing so that you automatically get episodes downloaded to your device. Those are all excellent ways to support the show and we so appreciate it. And as mentioned, we really want to hear about your interpretations of the fall of the House of Usher. So please do share your thoughts on Instagram. If you post about it, please tag us. We also love to see when and where you're listening. So tag us in your Instagram stories as well. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with another TBR toppling episode. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.